You're listening to the Eurasian Climate Brief, a podcast dedicated to climate issues in the region stretching from Eastern Europe to Russia, down to the Caucasus and Central Asia. I'm Natalie Soer, a climate journalist. I'm Angelina Davidova, an environmental and climate journalist. As usual, we will have a round of the latest climate headlines from our region at the end of the show, this time from our colleague Boris. And that's about it for usual, um, because as you know, everything has changed. We are recording this episode on the morning of the 21st of March, almost one month since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The figures thus far are deeply depressing. Since the start of the conflict, they have been more than 900 civilians killed. At least 1,300 Ukrainian soldiers have fallen, and there have been at least 7,000 Russian troop deaths, a greater number than all of the American troops killed over 20 years of war in Iraq and Afghanistan combined. And there have been 6.5 million Ukrainians displaced in the country 3.2 million refugees have fled it. And it goes without saying the environment is taking a hit too. A few hours ago, a shelling caused an ammonia leak at a chemical factory near Novoselitsa in the west of the country on the border with Romania. In light of these exceptional circumstances, we will be launching a special series on the environmental impacts of the war. So in the next few episodes, we will be talking from many countries of the world, including Ukraine and Russia, about various environmental and climate impacts that the military conflict is leaving on Ukraine, but also globally. Among the topics we are going to look into are the nuclear threats, soil and water pollutions, threats to biodiversity and animal welfare, global climate agenda and decarbonization, global energy transition, as well as threats and challenges for the global food security. In this specific episode, we'll be talking to Wim Zwinenborg, a researcher with the Dutch peace organization PAX. He has been monitoring the environmental impacts of the conflict in Ukraine since 2014. As we are a small podcast organization, I'm sorry to say there will be no special features during this period. We just currently do not have the resources to deploy war correspondents. But before we turn to Wim, it seems important we give you an update on how the team is going. Angelina and Boris are both of Russian nationalities and have been deeply shaken by the war. Boris has spent the last weeks volunteering in Germany to help Ukrainian refugees. Meanwhile, Angelina, you, like many Russia-based journalists and activists, have taken flight. Could you tell us where you're calling from and how you feel right now? Well, actually, right at the moment, I'm in Istanbul, Turkey. This is where many Russian journalists came to in the last few weeks. Um, as you probably know, a number of Russian media outlets uh, have been shut down or blocked in Russia. Um, I should also mention that uh, before February 24th, I used to have an environmental program program dedicated to climate change, uh, sustainability and other environmental issues on a radio which is called Echo of Moscow. So Echo of Moscow was shut down along with many other media outlets. And um, in addition to this, uh, a lot of new legislation have come uh, out and uh, come into force in Russia, including the one on fake news, 
which basically prohibits uh, journalists and other public people to even use the word war. Um, you can be charged with up till uh, 15 years imprisonment if you do this and if you spread any information which Russian officials do not consider to be trustworthy. This is why many journalists, including myself, um, have decided to leave the country. Many people went to Georgia, some went to Armenia, some went to Turkey. Um, quite a few of journalists are considering staying in these new countries uh, for a while. Others are leaving for other countries, so um, there's a lot happening. But I should also say that quite a number of colleagues are still working in Russia and from Russia, um, including Nova Gazeta, Meduza, and a number of other media outlets. And um, I consider them to be really brave and doing what they can in current conditions, even under threats. And what's uh, the morale? How are you and your colleagues feeling? Um, well, here in Istanbul, there are quite a lot of uh, Russian journalists, as I said, but also environmental experts and activists. Um, from the people that I personally know, there are around 15 who came here. So this is just my personal circle of friends and colleagues. Um, many people feel lost and also many people feel powerless because those are the people who um, are usually in their everyday and normal life. They are the ones who are very active. They are the ones who are willing to do something and to change the situation if they are unhappy with Now it's a situation when you cannot really do anything, um, either as a journalist as an activist. And uh, this is why, uh, along with the um, possibility of personal threats and threats for personal security, many of us have decided um, to leave the country. We hope for a while. And um, just um, either take a pause and um, reflect on what's happening and also on what we can do or continue working from a new location. And um, I should also say it's a combination of emotions that all of us are experiencing. Uh, we feel sad, we feel angry, we feel powerless, we feel lost. Uh, we feel like um, a lot of the topics we've been working on for the last 10 years or even more than this, they've all become rather irrelevant in current conditions. But also a lot of the initiatives which we supported or which we created, they've crumbled down along with the future of Russia as well. That's a deeply depressing situation, Angelina um, and I can only hope the conflict draws to a close as soon as possible. I hope so too, yeah. But let's go forward and turn to our conversation with Wim about the environmental impacts of the war. Natalie began by asking Wim about the type of impacts he has observed since the start of the conflict in 2014. It was kind of interesting because what we learned from the period 2014-2017 was the serious risk from some uh, larger industrial facilities um, storing a lot of chemicals and, and toxic waste. And so when the Russian invasion started, we tried to understand, okay, where, what happened where and what can we do to anticipate potential environmental uh, fallout from like shelling of those kind of sites. So, uh, yeah, on the morning of the 24th, there was immediately Uh, a, a large barrage of missiles and, and attacks against uh, fuel depots, which followed in a couple uh, in the next uh, in the next week. 
So Russia was taking out uh, fuel supplies for the Ukrainian army. So around various military bases, but also some of them are located inside uh, villages or towns. So that was direct sort of attack, creating some localized uh, potential hotspots. There's like, of course, a lot of smoke plumes and, and burning stuff around there. And of course, the immediate attention was drawn worldwide to uh, take over of the Chernobyl um, nuclear uh, reactor, uh, causing a lot of concern on of like what does it mean for uh, monitoring of uh, the radiation for the staff? Uh, could there be any other consequences to uh, the, the the radioactive waste? There were a couple of strikes near. Um, Sort of low-level radioactive waste facilities in Kharkiv and Kiev, which uh, also um, were picked up uh, worldwide by uh, the media as a as a potential risk. And in, in the following weeks, we saw a lot of attacks against like smaller warehouses, uh, malls, um, storages of chemical products. Um, over the last couple of days, has been intense shelling around Mariupol's uh, larger uh, metallurgical facilities, like the largest one in Europe. And they have a lot of tailing dams there containing uh, uh, hazardous waste uh, products from the uh, coal uh, production. And there has been some concerns over shelling nearby some of the tailing dams uh, northeast of Donetsk. And yeah, so, and that's like the first immediate sort of high-risk sites. And, and there's like a lot of other stuff sort of more in the, in the long term, which will have uh, potential uh, impacting uh, public health, but also ecosystems and, and biodiversity. And can you quickly take us through your research methods? And also, how do you deal with uh, disinformation, misinformation? Where are you getting the information and data from? Yeah, so basically, it's something we've been uh, developing since 2015, uh, when we're doing our work on Syria, and we're trying to use uh, open source methodology just to you know people are uploading a lot of uh, footage from uh, on on youtube on on twitter and recently other um, platforms as well like instagram and tiktok have become very popular and what we've done over the last seven years is sort of develop this uh, environmental open source methodology where we combine like that kind of footage that we collect online and trying to uh, geolocate if we see something burning you see some Rumors or people saying that uh, you know something chemical or something uh, toxic is on fire, and we're trying to find out where it is. We're trying to geolocate it. We use open source satellite imagery. So there's been a, a big uh, development in the last five years in access to uh, public uh, satellite imagery provided by the European uh, Space Agency there through their Sentinel program, which gives you a lot of optical data, it gives you radar data, it gives you sensor data to monitor air pollution. There have been a lot of commercial providers. Uh, Google is updating quite a lot of their high-resolution data providers, such as Planet in particular, and in, in, uh, in Ukraine has now providing a lot of free data and access. For us, open source research is all very helpful. So what we did is like, so we combined that data, we're trying to geolocate it, trying to check out okay, what kind of facility is this, what kind of uh, factory is this, uh, what is usually stored in this kind of factory, is there an immediate risk, or should we label it as something to check out in the long term. There's a lot of data on, for example, uh, natural reserves. There's All these maps are available, so you can check if something, you know, in the longer term, if there's an impact there. There's data on power lines, on energy infrastructure, on landfills, and that's something we're all trying to collect and collaborate and um, 
sort of make the sort of layered approach on what the risks are. Um, and yeah, ideally, we're trying to connect a bit more with also Ukrainian civil society organizations and environmental NGOs who did, did an outstanding job in the last couple of years by engaging uh, on the environmental issues in Ukraine, because Ukraine also had a lot of uh, legacy pollution from prior 2014. The people try to deal, deal with that have a lot of monitoring systems online that people have um, set up uh, or organizations have set up, for example, uh, there's now a whole monitoring system used to monitor uh, radioactive uh, pollution um, or radioactive uh, particles through a whole uh, nationwide sensor system and combining it with wind directions and trying to see, okay, where things are, are moving. So it's all helpful to understand what's going on. Lastly, the Ukrainian government got a lot of support in the last couple of years through international organizations and, and international NGOs on, on looking at particular uh, high-risk sites or medium-long-term risk sites, in particular around tailing dams, um, identifying what the issues are and dealing with all kinds of solid waste or general waste produced in the country itself. And that's all, all that information is all now sort of available. And uh, But yeah, we're also at risk of losing it as well in terms of uh, in case of you know, uh, experts are fleeing or people are uh, or getting worse, getting killed or shot. Uh, ministries are getting bombed or destroyed. And it is a, that, that's another a larger risk. We'll lose all the data as well. But there is a lot of knowledge uh, available, which we can all combine with the open source data. Mm. You also use social media channels such as Telegram, right? In your research. Yeah, in particular in Ukraine, a Telegram and uh, to some extent Vconductor, which is a Russian uh, version of Facebook, is also helpful because people share a lot of images. So, for example, my colleagues uh, tracking weapons and weapon use or tracking um, Russian units and movements, they also use a lot of Vconductor too because Russian soldiers are posting pictures. So it's very helpful to document war crimes and responsible um, brigades or platoons who are involved in that or it's helpful to check out what kind of weapons are being shipped. And Telegram is very useful because people upload a lot of imagery, uh, videos and photos so with additional information on locations we can you can download and share, geolocate. And yeah, that's uh, and that has been a very helpful and wealthy resource um, uh, for all the open source researchers at the moment looking at Ukraine. Mm. You've mentioned Chernobyl, and at the start of March, there was also uh, the very widely publicized uh, attack on the Zaporozhye nuclear plant. So a Russian uh, projectile hit it and provoked a fire in a training center near one of the six reactors. Uh, how surprised were you by that attack? There was... Uh, I think that's what that attack showed is the risk of things that can go wrong and that it's the risk is mostly because uh, people make a mistake. So in this case, I think it was the intention to, I mean, in general, I don't think it's the intention to take out a nuclear power plant with, uh, with lethal force, you know, just to bomb it uh, because the, there are, regional consequences to a nuclear incident that also affects Russians and Russian troops nearby. So, but it goes to show like how easily mistakes are made and that's, those are usually having the, the biggest consequences and, uh, and what kind of, uh, how that it's a really bad idea to use explosive violence around, uh, nuclear or industrial facilities. And, uh, it, it also reminded me of when I was visiting Donbass in 2018 and, 
we visited this location at this phenol factory and uh, they had a lot of toxic waste stored there and there was like a rotation of, of uh, arm from the ukrainian army so six weeks in and or, or two months and then a new regiment comes in and i talked with the commander and because they were shooting at each other as well so one side was the the Vyashabek separatists and in Holivka, and of course the Ukrainians had dug themselves in close to the factory. But their commander who just arrived like didn't know there was a huge uh, chemical waste storage pond close where he, his troops were staying. And I think the, the key to this is like information. Do people have information on what they potentially are firing at? In this case, I'm, 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 I have to assume that the Russian commander or the people were firing at nuclear facility had some kind of knowledge, but uh, going by the many mistakes Russia made also in, in, in Syria uh, and also currently in Ukraine, it really raises questions about the level of information commanders on the ground have on the areas where they're fighting in and what the potential risks are if they're fired at the wrong location. I think that kind of information seems to be generally lacking, uh, looking at what kind of installations and facilities have been bombed uh, over the last three weeks. From what we get from the news, a lot of urban infrastructure is also being destroyed, including uh, wastewater uh, treatment plants and other like water-related infrastructure. Can you speak about more about uh, water pollution in detail, and maybe also soil pollution, and also like how long is it due to stay there? Like, is there a long-term effect and assessments of this long-term effects? That's a very good question. So uh, a couple of things we're trying to monitor at the moment. So like, first of all, sort of disclaimer. So we're only trying to find out the locations where uh, things are happening. So we haven't been able, of course, to do things on the ground, but we're drawing upon other conflicts and pre-conflict data uh, before the invasion. We can sort of uh, assume that in certain locations, if certain incidents happen, you have soil and water and, and other kinds of uh, Uh, pollution impacts on, on natural resources there. And second, I think we, we do see, particularly around urban areas, where we see a significant use of uh, heavy explosive weapons against residential areas, houses, flat buildings, uh, factories, shopping malls, everything is bombed in Kharkiv, in Mariupol, in Kiev. And uh, Chernyev, it's, it's, it's really devastating. And this is particularly of concern because it, it generates a lot of large quantities of conflict rubble. So a lot of those buildings, particularly the older buildings, that might have asbestos in it, that might have like all kinds of cements that might contain um, heavy metals um, from um, the construction materials, or it might mix, can be mixed with hazardous waste or, or household waste. And the rubble itself creates large amounts of dust. And we do know from... For example, from Syria and Iraq, where also we saw and uh, we witnessed like severe destruction of populated areas with heavy weapons. And we also combined with uh, knowledge that we have, for example, from first responders in 9-11 who worked in these dusty environments for weeks and weeks to uh, remove rubble and trying to find people. The people are inhaling all this fine dust and all these fine particles. And on long term, like all these first responders developed all kinds of uh, uh, diseases, from respiratory diseases to some of them. Uh, even cancers because of the titanium particles which were part of the construction materials. So we also, is like one long-term concern uh, is like people living or unable to flee those kind of areas and face like this kind of exposure to all the, the dust and, and rubble in this area. Uh, another problem, what you mentioned around uh, water and soil pollution, 
In particular, water, there's been a couple of strikes against water facilities in Chuniev and, uh, and around some other smaller uh, towns and cities, which results in people having lacking access to clean water, which creates also an, an immediate uh, problem for you know not, not having water. But also in the long term, uh, it can lead to communicable diseases, um, outbreaks of those, those kind of diseases which can spread around. There's a collapse of, of waste management in those besieged cities, which also in the long term can create or contribute to the spread of communicable diseases, uh, also something we've seen in other conflicts. And uh, yeah, the rubble itself, how do you deal with that? that that's a soil issue. Like, do, do you, for example, in Iraq, there are issues around, can you create safe landfills to deal with it because you don't know what's in it? It's going to be mixed with uh, unexploded ordnance or other kinds of hazardous materials, but you don't have, if you have millions and millions of tons of rubble, you're not going to process everything. And yeah, that could create additional uh, risks depending on where you store it. Yeah, lastly, just also we have seen a couple of attacks around marine and ports. Uh, so there's been some tankers, some smaller bunker uh, vessels have been burning. Uh, some ports have been bombed. We don't know exactly what the, the impact on marine pollution is. When there have been some discharges of untreated wastewater into local rivers and lakes, which seem to be more incidental, so not a not necessarily a long-term uh, problem because that probably will dilute very fast. But yeah, it's just a pattern of, of incidents that you were witnessing at the moment, and some of them could have longer-term uh, impacts on soil and water resources. And of course, all of this uh, impacts on food security as well. What kind of risk are we talking about um, on that terrain? Yeah, so that's, that's another layer of another level of problem. So there's so much shelling around um, agriculture areas. So the, the shelling itself and a lot of the movements of, uh, of military vehicles have done damage to agriculture areas. Of course, farmers uh, are uh, fleeing or might get uh, shot or, or killed, which also has an impact on you know agricultural production, um, the shutdown of the ports, the, the lack of uh, access to fertilizers and uh, herbicides, pesticides, all will have a severe impact on, on food security itself, let alone the export. And then we haven't even talked about, like, okay, what's going to, about the political situation, for example, if Russia takes control of large parts of the country or is not retreating anytime soon, like what is happening with the areas under control and the production, would they allow for export or not? But like in, in, at the moment, we assume, also see, you know, a lot of unexploded ordnance, landmines, and other explosives. Uh, around agriculture areas, so these all needs to be cleared. So Russia used a lot of cluster munitions. They've used multiple rocket launcher systems, which also generate a lot of unexploded ordnance, artillery shelling around these kind of areas. Um, Where are these agricultural areas in 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 Ukraine? Well, the whole of Ukraine is is um, a huge agriculture area. Most of it is in the center in the west, but in the east there is also a significant agricultural part of uh is used for agricultural production so yeah that's and then the question is then like yeah where what kind of consequences does it have for global food supplies and in particular for those kind of countries um and it's been reported in the media as well that uh particularly in the middle east there's a lot of dependence on food imports from russia and from ukraine so because also the sanctions on russia also limits the export of products abroad at least we haven't spoke in depth about the damage to uh, military facilities and what kind of 
impacts that could give way to. Um, could you tell us what military facilities um, have been targeted thus far? I, I saw in your research that you were listing fuel storage sites um, and ammunitions and military remnants and, and military toxic remnants. Could you take us through that? Yeah, so like I mentioned in the beginning, like a part of the military facilities, like they targeted few depots used to limit access to jet fighters and drones and, and tanks, armored vehicles to use that kind of use the fuel or diesel uh, or kerosene, depending what they were targeting. There have been strikes against and tank facilities, ammunition depots, like a couple of larger ammunition depots, uh, around three and four we counted so far. So they have like large amounts of artillery shells, other kinds of munitions and, and uh, propellants. And, you know, if that's all packed in one location and explodes, like there's risk for a lot of heavy metals being spread around the red area. Also, we draw upon previous research from uh, pre uh, from other conflicts or from other incidents with explosions of, uh, of ammunition depots where research demonstrated like heavy metals in the soil. Again, this is probably like a long-term low risk issue which is not an immediate risk to civilians but something still that needs to be uh figured out to see what like the risks are to groundwater pollution from heavy metals but it's definitely worth checking out and yeah indeed we've there's a massive amount of armored vehicles and military vehicles being destroyed and uh remnants from from uh, anti-aircraft missiles or other types of uh, weapons that uh contain like different kind of assets or propellants or obscurance that uh, might pose a risk for those who don't know how to deal with it. So, for example, in Iraq, we've seen incidents where kids were playing around tanks. And, of course, there's like the direct explosive, uh, unexploded ordnance threat to civilians, but also scrap metal workers or, or people playing on tanks uh, or armored vehicles and might pick up stuff that uh, also poses an acute risk to them. Um, and we see now, of course, that there are famous memes going around Iraqi Opas or Ukrainian farmers taking all the scrap metal from the military vehicles. But it has also, you know, it's like a, it's a small risk, but it's like worth checking out what potential implications are, at least to include in, in awareness raising at some point when it's possible for people not to approach, not to just collect stuff from those tanks or military vehicles. So if I'm correct, a tank would typically contain some heavy metals or dangerous chemicals to for human health that we're not discussing. Um, well, like destroyed tanks. So usually if everything is in place, like it wouldn't be a big issue. But like you think of like PCBs or battery assets, asbestos as well, and some of the older tanks. And so if things are destroyed, you know, it's like things break, break up and, you know, that creates more uh, pathways of exposure to the kind of things which shouldn't be in a place where, which they're naturally in because they're broken down so it can start leaking or it creates like, you know, asbestos dust inside a tank or armored vehicle. Those are more like the, the risk scenarios. Again, those are not like acute high-term risks, but it's just for the sort of completeness of trying to understand what the risks are. It's good to look at those kind of things. But it's also something where was I was reminded of this week by a Ukrainian um, government officials saying, "Yeah, you know, we're we're uh, bombs are exploding and bullets flying around our head. We're not going to worry about if we get cancer in 20 years because, you know, something is burning somewhere. And that's, of course, also the reality of the conflict. And also we should be careful in those kind of risk communications around these kind of um, incidents or, or scenarios because also you don't want to put extra unnecessary psychological burden on the 
on people who are living in conflict zones and, and uh, because something is burning nearby. Like unless it's of course acutely toxic or, or highly hazardous uh, materials, and that's the reason, of course, why we are monitoring this. Like what are like the first priority sites? And you know, you can only know what the first priority sites are if you actually make an effort in identifying them. And probably ninety-five percent can be dealt with in the long term. But it's those five percent which can have a huge impact that you want to know for sure when the conflict's happening. That you want to know, okay, this should be on our radar. This is all so sad to hear. Uh, and um, has there been any reaction from the international community? And what else the international community can do about it? I mean, specifically about the environmental impacts we are talking about. Yeah, I think that's uh, we're something we're more hopeful about because we do see uh, particularly those countries who have been doing work on post-conflict environmental assessments or organ international organizations who um, have knowledge uh, on these kind of issues, in particular the UN Environment Program, which it's like the, the UN organization that's that has the mandate to do post-conflict environmental assessments. Like they are the ones who should be involved because they have the expertise, they have the network of expertise uh, to, to uh, dip into and Uh, they can get the funding to do this kind of work. So uh, hopefully there will be funding available for them by states uh, to do their work. Ukraine already submitted a request to the UN for UNEP to be involved in monitoring the uh, and doing a post-conflict environmental assessment and, and looking at high-risk sites. Uh, there have been a lot of humanitarian organizations who do work in or on Ukraine. So there's, for example, REACH, which is a humanitarian organization based in Geneva, Uh, prior to the conflict, they did some really great area risk-based assessments in Mariupol and uh, Toretsk and uh, Bakhmut, which are like three areas in Donetsk, where they looked at basically everything environment-related. So from damage to uh, water infrastructure, um, burned area and uh, index analysis, um, high-risk chemical sites, uh, soil change, um, climate issues, um, everything, like you name it. So There is a wealth of knowledge already uh, present, and it just requires activating all this kind of expertise. Uh, and there, I actually had a chat with a couple of those organizations, and everyone is really eager to get involved and to share the expertise. Uh, NASA reached out uh, saying, hey, we, we want to look at what kind of impact this has on, on food production. Um, I'm pretty sure there are people at the WHO or the World Bank who would be interested in, okay, how can we collect all this data to do post-conflict, make post-conflict uh, rehabilitation and reparation efforts more efficient. And I think that's why having all this data collection at the moment and engaging with people and, and particularly like a lot of Ukrainians who want to do something, they fled the country, but they have this expertise like engineers or environmentalists and who want to contribute to something. Like the best we can do is to prepare ourselves to make things uh, to better again as soon as possible with the funding and expertise uh, available. I think that's the The only thing I think we should cling on to right now, okay, like we can't stop the war, but we can't make sure when it's over that uh, we can uh, like look where the most pressing issue are, trying to repair things and trying to fix things and, and move on. I think that's the, the least we can do. And I think that's where we need you know, countries to provide support, uh, funding support or expertise to all these organizations doing this kind of really helpful work. 
I know you're not a lawyer, but uh, at a legal level, um, Russia is currently being investigated by the International Criminal Court for war crimes. Do you think there's scope for environmental crimes to be tried for too? That's a really good question because internationally, on their, the um, the protection of the environment, armed conflict sort of uh, approach in international humanitarian law, the threshold for accountability for an environmental crime in war is quite high. So. I think the only country who ever reached that threshold was Iraq when they set up uh, set a fire to 600 oil wells in Kuwait because um, it was like severe long-term damage. I think only in the case of a deliberate shelling of a chemical plant, which you know releases a million cubic meter of toxic waste, which renders a whole area uninhabitable for decades, that would be a case that could be taken to court, or of course, the damage to one of the nuclear facilities or radioactive storage sites that could also be definitely fall under the under the category. So, well, let's hope that that doesn't happen. And the rest, it's more more tricky because you have to prove intent. You have to prove that it's severe and long term damage to the environment. And what we see now, the most uh, is sort of widespread localized damage, which hopefully most of it will be cleaned up fairly fast. So, um, yeah, it's good that it's being mentioned and it's good that people are, are bringing this under attention to show what kind of uh, tools and uh, we have, also legal tools, uh, because it helps investigation. It helps in the investigation on itself. It can be uh, very helpful to document what's happening and what the implications are. But if, if it actually reaches the current established threshold for being accountable for what's happening, that's something which probably is going to prove quite difficult to uh to be uh, implemented or to be uh, for Russia to be um, prosecuted for, I think. Mm-hmm. Wim, thank you so much for being here today. And thank you so much for your valuable work since 2014. Keep us posted on this. Yeah, you're very welcome. And thanks so much for having me on your show. Thanks to Natalie and Angelina. And now for the latest climate headlines from our region. Russia will not be able to fulfill its climate pledge to slash carbon emissions by 80% between 1990 and 2050 because of sanctions linked to its invasion of Ukraine, according to a ministerial report publicized by Commerçant on the 16th of March. Speaking to Climate Home News, climate analytics Russia expert Ryan Wilson downplayed the impact of the sanctions. Indeed, the majority of the planned emissions reductions come from very high projected removals from the forestry sector, which evade the sanctions. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has sent prices soaring in Hungary, undermining Prime Minister Viktor Orban's low-cost energy program in the process, the EU reporter wrote on the 19th of March. The country is currently facing 15-year-high inflation with parliamentary elections just round the corner on the 3rd of April. In order to weather the worst of the crisis, Orban has announced caps on fuels and extended price curbs on household energy bills in place since 2015. Some analysts are skeptical whether Orban will be able to scrap the fuel price cap in one step after the election if oil prices remain above 100 US dollars per barrel. Romania, Bulgaria and the Czech Republic could delay their coal phase-out plans in order to lower their reliance on Russian natural gas imports, Climate Home News reported on the 15th of March. 
Several Czech companies have already decided to switch from gas back to coal. Bulgaria has scrapped its plans for a large gas power plant, while Romania will increase extraction capacity in its existing coal mines. Poland is looking at the role of natural gas in its green transition as it seeks to cut down its dependency on Russia, the country's Undersecretary of State for Climate, Adam Gibursz-Czetwertynski, said on the 17th of March. 55% of Polish gas and 75% of coal imports are currently from Russia. Poland's long-term supply contract with Russia's Gazprom expires at the end of this year. Warsaw plans to replace that supply via a new gas pipeline from Norway, expected to be ready by November, Reuters reports. Ukraine's leading climate scientist Svetlana Krakowska said that the roots of the climate crisis and Russian invasion of a country both lie in fossil fuels. Speaking to The Guardian on the 9th of March, Krakowska said, I started to think about the parallels between climate change and this war, and it's clear that burning oil, gas and coal is causing warming and impacts we need to adapt to. And Russia sells these resources and uses the money to buy weapons. She went on to warn the world's fossil fuel-based economy would destroy our civilization in the case of business as usual. That's it for another episode of the Eurasian Climate Brief. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a review and share the episode on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Eurasian Climate. We'd also like to thank our supporters at NOST and at the Battleground magazine. We'll be back soon with a new episode, so see you then. Music